Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and I'm joined with Sam Becker as always. And today, we're talking how basically all of reggaeton is being sued. <laughs> yeah, you didn't think we didn't think you could sue an entire genre, but um, we were incorrect. Yeah, yeah. For you, uh, for the few of you that might follow me on Instagram, you might have uh, seen something that I tweeted out from. Uh, that you sent me, Sam, was at dancehallmag.com broke a story that a prominent Jamaican dancehall production duo that go by the name of Steely and Cleavy are uh, essentially, yeah, suing all of reggaeton for copyright violation uh, for use of their fish market rhythm. Um, We can get into what exactly rhythm is and what we mean by essentially suing all of reggaeton, but just to give you a little bit of the details to start, this lawsuit is basically claiming that some of the most major players in reggaeton on some of the biggest hits in the world were essentially infringing on copyright laws. So uh, just a short list of people included in this in this uh, in this um, in this, this lawsuit. This list is nuts. This list is yeah. this list is nuts. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you could maybe you could uh, offer some more because all I was going to say was uh, uh, Luca Fonzi's well, everyone. Desper- this list is Despercito. everyone. This list is yeah, everyone. Well, <laughs> Including Despacito, which is like uh, the most watched video on YouTube of all time, and that means ha- Sam, just give me a rough estimate of how many how many views you think it had that video has on on YouTube. Um, shoot, I should actually I should know this. Um, I'm gonna guess two point five billion plays. Eight billion. <laughs> Eight billion. Eight billion plays. <laughs> <laughs> dude i the numbers in this are just astronomical i saw um this is just like a way of getting a sense of how big <laughs> reggaeton is globally puerto rico just puerto rico in 2014 streamed 7500 years of reggaeton hell fucking yeah give it up for puerto rico <laughs> Amazing, amazing. So yeah, so uh, Despacito is included in the lawsuit. Um, 40, 40 Daddy Yankee tracks. Uh, so a Justin Bieber remix, and like countless, countless other uh, reggaeton tracks that are like mega hits. Superstars, superstars, superstars. yeah, yeah, yeah. mega. Right. Hits. Um, so we're gonna dive into all the reasons. Wait, so so any any bad any bad bunny in there? No bad bunny. And we will dive into some of the reasons why there's no Bad Bunny, um, which which is part of the bigger story, and which why why we're doing a full full hour episode on this. But um, yet yeah, beyond just the big names being indicted by this uh, lawsuit, um, you know we're going to consider things like uh, when a very localized music and culture hits international markets, and uh, thus a whole new set of laws around copyright. But also the complexities regarding music and culture in Jamaica and like so on. And uh, yeah, I can't help but also just 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 step back though before we jump into all this and just laugh at how basically uh, two producers from an island of three billion are kind of like uh, using the majors game against them, which is just kind of like dope, I think. I don't know. <laughs> like they're, they're sh- like the two guys from Jamaica are basically gonna shake up like the entire, uh, possibly all of reggaeton and, and, and uh, you know, maybe a huge portion of how the music industry does business possibly. We'll we'll discuss, but um, yeah, and, and and just to 
and, and just to be clear here, just by like a way of context before we dive further into the story, right? Like there's been a lot of, I would say, uh, in a non-legally deterministic way, bullshit <laughs> music copyright infringement lawsuits in recent years, right? In the wake of the Blurred Lines lawsuit, where as far as I can tell, um, Pharrell and Robin Thicke lost as much because like Robin Thicke showed up high and clearly didn't give a fuck about the proceedings. Um, and when they lost to the Marvin Gaye state for copyright infringement, like it was as much about that as <laughs> about the music. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of like weird copyright infringement lawsuits, right? There was one about uh, about um, Shape of You by Ed Sheeran. There's been there's been a lot of these kind of like, oh, your song sounds like my song because they're both in a major key. Um, and just like to be very clear, this is not that. Full stop. This is not, and this is not a story about someone trying to take down like the Latin X music industry. This is a much more complicated story about, like you were saying, Saxon, about how local music economies intersect across national borders over time and about how those then connect to changes in global music economies and global technologically facilitated music economies and the major label system at a global scale and how all of those different levels of interaction connect in all sorts of messy and complicated ways that that really um that really tell it like an amazing story about our musical life our shared musical life over the past three four decades almost and it's super complicated and i don't think there's anyone who's right or wrong here Except, like, I also feel like Steely and Cleavy should get their money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I think that's a really, I think you said some really great things there, Sam, because, yeah, it's definitely not like, oh, our songs sound the same because they're in a major key, but it's also, like, not like a money grab, but then also maybe it's deserved. But, anyways, we'll dive into some of that. And, you know, th- those are just sort of more personal opinions, but, and that I don't want that to take away from the, the bigger, interesting story, as you said. So let's dive in. First off, who are Steely and Cleavy? And what the hell is a rhythm? Okay, to start. Steely and Cleavy, Jamaican dancehall production duo. Steely actually unfortunately died in 2008. So this lawsuit is actually um, his, 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 RIP. Yeah, RIP, his estate is actually a part of this. Uh, uh, Cleavy is still, still alive. They both kind of got their start in the 70s, did some work for Lee Scratch Perry at the Black Ark Studios in Kingston. By the late 80s, as dancehall begins to become more digitized, the two kind of became prominent producers. Uh, most notably, uh, Cleavy was one of the first to pioneer the use of drum machines in reggae. And, like, this is another moment of, like, musical complexity in our story, right? Like, Jamaica, which is throughout the 70s, has been pioneering um, all kinds of incredibly innovative analog studio techniques with, you know, the development of dub by folks like Lee Scratch Perry and King Tubby using often kind of what would be considered by, like, the major Western studios to be, like, quote-unquote, like, second-rate equipment in all kinds of, like, dazzling, dazzlingly inventive ways. 
to make like a, a variety of new sounds. And what happens here is that all of a sudden, a new wave of relatively cheap Japanese-made musical electronics hit Jamaica, and all of these uh, all these new sounds and new approaches to production become possible. I mean, the kind of the quintessential one of this period is the slang tang rhythm, which is like built around a built-in Casio keyboard thing, right? Right, right. And basically kind of like changes, I mean, contemporary Jamaican music. You know, as as I said, like di- dance hall becomes more digitized, but really in the sense that like it, it goes completely electronic, essentially. It's just drum machines, basically. <laughs> um, and keyboards and synths and everything. So that's the context that Steely and Cleavy are working in. Right, and that's kind of when they really sort of begin to... Uh, make a name for themselves, I'd say. The two form a label. They go on to produce a number of rhythms, which I'll get into in a minute, and songs that you know work with some of the biggest names in dance hall and like other major artists outside of Jamaica, like in the 80s into the 90s. But for the sake of this show, the most salient detail I think is that Steely and Cleveland wrote a number of rhythms which were used on some major dance hall hits, and that, as the lawsuit as the lawsuit claims, were later reused in reggaeton. So you're probably asking. What's a rhythm? What is a what rhythm? What is a rhythm? So I'm going to do like a really hard and fast definition here. Rhythm is basically Jamaican patois for rhythm. And basically are the instrumental background or the rhythm section of reggae, dub, dance, all songs. And this is where things get really complex, but a rhythm will get reused with different vocals and other additional instrumentation on hundreds, if not sometimes thousands of songs uh, in contemporary Jamaican music. And so you can kind of consider a rhythm as essentially like the building blocks of like popular Jamaican music, I'd say. So that's kind of a hard and fast definition that we're going to work with uh, for the sake of our show. And essentially, I mean, it's worth thinking about, I think, here, the differences. And this is where you get into these kind of like cultural differences between, let's say, dancehall and hip hop, right? Where in hip hop, beats will like reference or flip other beats you know and sometimes if it's been a decade you're allowed to use the same beat in a kind of like commenting on an earlier beat so like uh like that nikki record from a couple years ago did like a lot of like old school new york beats what's very different and but like if you hopped on and you can do a freestyle on someone else's beat but like if you released a new hit single on the beat from wap like another major rapper can't release a major single on the beat from WAP. But but in Jamaica, it is, and in Jamaican dance hall, it is, my understanding, Saxon, correct me if I'm wrong here, is like it was, was and is totally acceptable practice that a rhythm comes out, there's a big hit, you know, a bunch of different people produce tracks on the rhythm, on the rhythm, they then, if one of them's a big hit, a whole bunch of other people will produce tracks, some of which are hits as big or bigger than the original track. Oh, yeah. um, and that's just like, oh, it's this is the year when this rhythm was big. Um, and you can actually have these amazing, like in, in Sound Clash culture, I've got some Sound Clash tapes from the 80s uh, when that Dembo rhythm dropped, where like there's like a 45-minute section where the two DJs get into this absolutely insane, where they're just playing Dembo rhythm tracks back and back, like specially made versions for their sound system. So uh, 
boutique versions of hit songs that shout out the name of the sound system all on the same rhythm. And they go back and forth for like 45 minutes as yeah. like the high point of this sound clash. So it's just totally an acceptable part of this culture that like part of the art of dancehall, and especially dancehall in the 80s, is putting your spin on an existing rhythm yeah and it's it's still so prominent and like like you said it's not uncommon to get a 45 minute hour and a half like mix that you could find online that's essentially just numerous different vocal takes over the same rhythm (laughs) or or even today like you know the album isn't as emphasized in current contemporary dance hall but you will get a compilation and the compilation will be the name of the rhythm and then a number of like contemporary dance hall stars offering their vocal take over it so it's yeah quite co- everything you said like it, it's still very very common shouts out to my stalag 17 tape hell yeah hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah so so what did that what does that have to do with reggaeton what does it have to do with a lawsuit filed in california in 2000 i'm oh, sorry filed in california this october uh copyright what 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 are, what are we talking about here so i'm gonna go ahead and thread this history uh as uh, as clearly as possible but now that you know who Steely and Cleely are, and now that you know what a rhythm is, I will explain how we got to this copyright infringement claimed. Claimed copyright infringement. So, Steely and Cleavy wrote a track called Fish Market, which became the basis for the Pokemon rhythm, okay, which was then used for a major dancehall hit, Shaba Ranks's Dembo. It was a major dancehall hit, and Shaba Ranks is probably like one of the biggest like dancehall artists to really ever come out of Jamaica. And that rhythm, that song, the Dembo song by Shaba Ranks, and the rhythm it used, Pokemon Jam, which came out of a Steely and Cleavy song that they wrote called Fish Market, basically became the basis for like uh, all of reggaeton. <laughs> and like, okay, not really, but just to give you some context, Wayne Marshall musicologist, professor, journalist, and early Money for Nothing guests, who we, we love, um, wrote in an academic 2008 article specifically just on Dembo. <laughs> and I actually, side note, wonder if Wayne is going to be either referenced or like asked to come to this trial. Because <laughs> um, he is the premier expert on it, for sure. And uh, so he wrote a, an academic paper in 2008 specifically on Dembo and the rhythm. And according to his research... He says that elements of Shaba Ranks' 1991 hit Dembo appear in upwards of 80% of all reggaeton productions. <laughs> okay, so it was written in 2008, right? But like, so slightly dated. But nonetheless, you cannot understate the massive importance of this rhythm and that song in the foundation of reggaeton. And so let's talk for a second for like the, the complimentary part of this story, right? About reggaeton and... um. You know, this is this is an area where um, we know some of the history. I would like for those who want to learn more. Um, uh, another former ex Afropop Worldwide alum, Marlon Bishop, actually uh, produced an amazing series called Loud: The History of Reggaeton with um, Futura Studios and Latino USA. So I would definitely check that out for a, a much much deeper version of this history. But in a short version, it this is a story about the like the incredible interconnections throughout Caribbean islands um, and their kind of like colonial and postcolonial histories. Reggaeton kind of emerges out of reggae and espanol, uh, is my understanding. A lot of which comes out of Panama, actually, where there's a 
large Jamaican population, um, a lot of which was related to like creating and then um, I guess work around in the canal zone. And so, and if you go to uh, Panama now, or at least when, when I did about, I guess, five years ago, there's still this very interesting, um, like, there's a lot of reggae and Espanol floating around, which is clearly related to what becomes reggaeton, but is different. It's got a, it's much more like dance hall in Spanish. And there are things like that, the meringue rap. <laughs> I found some meringue rap <laughs> cassettes floating around. Basically, like, early trans-caribbean flows between where people are you know spanish language rappers are hopping on to not hip-hop beats as much as dancehall beats because that's kind of the kind of the, the the caribbean like pop lingua franca of the global hip-hop revolution right right and so all these flows are happening and then yeah some of that music makes its way in the early 90s to puerto rico where it turns into a style that's kind of called underground, which pulls from rap, pulls from American rap, but also pulls from these dancehall sounds, which are enormous at the time, including Dembo and the Dembo rhythm. And it becomes... Yeah, which which I mean, if you... Basically, like, so to get it, and if you want to get the nitty gritty of it, it's actually kind of, as you mentioned, like, essentially, there's basically, there's basically a Spanish version cover of Dembo by an artist named, like, Dennis the Menace, and that, that's actually also, like, mentioned in the, in the lawsuit. Dear listener, like, you know the Dembo rhythm. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just worthwhile to just take a second to, like, like, let's focus on this. So, so Saxon, can you play Fish Market, which becomes the Pokemon Jam rhythm? And this is, this is the original text of the Steely and Cleavy track that is kind of becomes the basis for becomes the basis for for, for reggaeton. So give it give him a taste of it, Saxon. Okay, okay. So now that we've heard that's the original. Now let's take a second and just hear like the briefest. Don't pull us down, sliver of the Shaba Ranks track Dembo. Okay, and now let's hear it in a reggaeton song. So you can hear that, like that rhythm, that basic rhythm that is that is reggaeton, and it's fascinating because it it, it like. It is reggaeton the way that like a one four five progression is the blues, <laughs> right? That's great. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, like it is reggaeton, but and this is the the, the complexities where like look the one four five progressions or some of those basic blues licks didn't just and we know this from musicology now, right? Like, they didn't emerge out of like the mists of history. They were invented by specific guitarists working in specific communities in the, like, 1880s, 1890s, early 20th century. Maybe 1880s is even a little bit early, right? But they were working in folk spaces, in vernacular spaces, and kind of, you know, they made a living on it, and it was kind of circulating freely, and that it wasn't tied to an international 
global music economy. And in fact, once recording started, did, did hit these spaces, there's a, and this is a whole other story, like a lot of copyrights got claimed on a lot of folk songs or songs that the original creator had who knew who it was. What's crazy about this is that in the same way that like this rhythm is part of the like the basic musical practice of this genre that is just mat that that it, that is massively successful it's also created by a set of people like <laughs> these two men and we know who they were and we know when they did it yeah exactly and so essentially to go full circle steely and cleavy as mentioned before it's the state of steely because he died in 2008 um in their lawsuit are basically like, okay, so wait, you built this musical empire on something we wrote? Okay, cool, pay up for like the last like 30 years plus. And as you're suggesting, that brings up like one hell of a lot of interesting and fascinating questions and issues around like not just copyright law, but like musical culture and like contemporary traditions in Jamaica that we've kind of mentioned, the Caribbean, parts of Latin America, but also like what it means when you, as you've mentioned, that these very local, often smaller, hyper-localized music scenes run into international audiences and markets and by proxy, different laws. And so, yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. And I, you know, maybe to start, like, one thing that it makes this so interesting for me is that it's kind of, it feels like it could be almost a real inflection point, possibly, in, like, Jamaican musical culture. And in a weird way, it kind of pushes against... I don't think I'm overstepping my, my statement here, but kind of pushes against the way Jamaican music has worked in the last 40 years. Like specifically where like, as mm -hmm. we mentioned before, like rhythms have, have had kind of gotten this pass of like free use and kind of like free of copyright issues because like, you know, copyright law didn't even become a thing in Jamaica until 1993. And and from what I understand, it's, it's, pro it's still like pretty difficult to enforce on the island. Not to mention that there's just not a lot of, capital coming through and so like a lot of these dancehall artists you know if you did sue them like i mean they're not really making much money anyways but um and to well, be honest i like, think that's like an important yeah 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 and i say and to be honest like you know talking to talking about copyright and like where the money goes in jamaica is already like a little bit taboo but for the most part like traditionally at least in this era of dancehall the producers ruled and an aspiring dj which is like the jamaican term for mc you know gets like 500 bucks or something and they cut their vocals and that's it like no royalties and like I, maybe now with like the bigger names like pop can or the incarcerated like vibes cartel i don't know probably works a little bit different and you know i'd have to look into that but for the sake of our show it makes this lawsuit so fascinating because unlike dozens and dozens of dancehall artists from jamaica reggaeton used this rhythm and or elements of it and became essentially as you were just saying a multi-billion dollar worldwide phenomenon with major label contracts, massive concerts, sponsorships, like you name it. And that's something that dance hall artists really have never really had, except for maybe like a few exceptions, you know, of like, I, you know, I can think of two dance hall artists like Buju Banton and then maybe ironically, Shabba Ranks. You're Sean Paul Erasure. You're Sean Paul yeah. Erasure. Shit. Like, is unacceptable. <laughs> okay, sorry, Sean. Yeah, Sean Paul, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That, and not to mention, forget? not to mention, not to mention Shaggy. Shaggy, too. Shaggy, right? Yeah, exactly. Shaggy. Okay, so they've had like a handful, but like, I think it's fair to say that like Dancehall has like never really fully reached the heights that reggaeton is at now. And I, you know, that's, that's kind of the main point. And so I guess like the question, I guess like for me, is is also like you know do other dance hall producers like kind of try to do the same thing like when it comes to say 
like hip hop or like other uh, reggaeton tracks that have used Jamaican produced and written rhythms. And like, you know, unfortunately, like many of these producers have passed and don't really have estates or, you know, uh, you know, this is side note. It's also why you probably get so many fucked up reggae dance hall compilations from like random labels who are essentially trying to capitalize on the fact that they like know that in no way anyone, anyone in Jamaica is going to come after them for like, I don't know, a rock steady compilation or something. But like it does bring up a litany. It does. It does bring up like a litany of questions of what happens when like a very local cottage mu- music industry and culture like you know runs into this this kind of situation and like hits international markets in like such a big way. Yeah, I think that's a really really interesting point. And I mean, and I think it's worth dwelling on like I think a little bit of like the dog that didn't bark here, right? Which is yeah, it's twenty twenty three, and this track has been circulating. For a really long time. Yeah, since 91. Why didn't... Yeah, since 91. And so, like, the question is, like, okay. And it's worth maybe thinking through the history of this track. And and not to, like, you know, say that we're in the mindset of of Steely and Cleavy or the the states thereof, right? Like, there's many reasons, including access to lawyers, personal stuff, you know, people being in various points of their life, changes in the Jamaican music economy, etc., 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 that can influence the timing of a lawsuit like this. But, like, I do think that it it follows a certain kind of, like, very generalized logic, um, which relates to, like, the state of the music economies that various folks are engaging with and the way those music economies work um, and the way that streaming in particular has changed them. So, like, let's go back to kind of the state of play in the late 80s, early 90s, right? Where dance halls primarily circulating in Jamaica and, and to the broader Caribbean. And in some ways, like, I feel like this is this is like a, a clear moment where um, in like an old school music economy, right? Where they're selling physical things. At some level, like, it's okay for your music to circulate beyond your control because usually like the limit is like your ability to press up and then efficiently distribute physical copies of a thing right and so having a bootleg cassette tape out there um often just drives more demand for your music and it lets you know all of a sudden you're selling records let's say in puerto rico um or you have fans in puerto rico and more than that the music economy is so fast moving that like any individual hit is part of a string of hits and it's about like you, you often call these kind of like cottage industry saxon right like these are craftsmen making stuff for market you know craftsmen and artists making stuff for market in this very like localized way it's about circulating within a given community and within that given community like yeah you could like i mean it, it saying that you would sue people for copyright infringement goes against the fundamental logic of the jamaican music economy where it's really small you have beefs and rivalries and tiffs clearly, but like just like suing everyone for like hopping on your rhythm would, would be so antithetical to your interests. <laughs> like you want everyone to be on your rhythm so that the next time you produce a rhythm, everyone's on it. So your studio complex gets, you know, so, so your sound system is more popular your studio complex can buy nicer stuff and you can like build up your business yeah and i mean and essentially it also like it, it also like builds up the whole community as well but it, like allowing like other djs 
slash MCs as, as as we call them here in the states, you know, like to to come up and like you know create and that that creates you know all kinds of rivalries and like sound clashes and and you know it, like it strengthens the overall community. It's like uh, what's the like a uh, what's the term like a uh, uh, rising tide raises all boats or something kind of is that right? Did I get yeah, that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so then what happens, right, is you get partially because of like diaspora communities in the U.S., especially diaspora communities in places like New York, which are both centers of yeah, or hip- London. Yeah, but for hip hop more New York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that are centers of black musical production in the '80s, '90s. You do get this like you get several moments where Jamaican musical forms kind of cr- and artists cross over into the U.S. mainstream, often into like black music markets, but then sometimes into like with with uh the example of like sean paul into like the bar mitzvah circuit where like i listen to temperature <laughs> i listen to temperature at bar mitzvahs as a 13 year old and yeah. you know like really crossed over <laughs> in the pop mainstream but the 90s was another one of those moments there were a couple of them like i said the 90s is another one of these moments so someone like shaba ranks you know and it goes both ways where like someone like shaba ranks is having major hits but also someone like uh, uh, KRS-One is doing dancehall tracks on their albums. You know what I mean? Yeah, or sampling it. And actually, like, KRS-One, I think, I think did uh, does have a track where they, they sample uh, the Pokemon Jam. Rhythm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so you get this, like, crossover, right? And as a result, and this is what's interesting, I mean, I'm sure at one level that folks in places like Puerto Rico and certainly in Panama are listening to the original Pokemon Jam and Shaba Ranks songs, right? That are sampling this rhythm. But also the fact that it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at any level that the track that all of this is based on comes from the dance hall artist who the biggest dance hall artist of the 90s, the Jamaican artist who really crosses over into the American major label system and then is pushed globally by that system. So actually, let's take a second and maybe as part of the story. Yeah, I mean, like that that is the story of Shop Ranks is that he he was able to cross over like because he was able to sort of connect with this, I think, burgeoning hip hop. Yeah. Black culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's able to cross over because it's burgeoning hip-hop black culture and becomes a global star with major label U.S. deals, which means that there is this way that the rhythm crosses over into the mainstream and in, into kind of the mainstream copyright. Now, it is interesting. Like, I don't know at all, and it would be very interesting to see, like, what the legal negotiations behind Dembo, which is the song, the Shaba Ranks hit that carries this rhythm worldwide is like right like dembo is not well it's being, so fascinating it's not too sued, because right? yeah no and that's what's so fascinating about it is that you know um <laughs> as as i'm sure some real like reggae dancehall heads if they're listening have been screaming while listening to this so yeah that track was actually produced by uh, another famous dancehall producer named bobby digital so dembo is actually produced by bobby digital who is using the Pokemon jam rhythm to make it just even more complicated and confusing. And I mean, a part of me is like sitting here being like, well, does Bobby digital get like some, like get some, get a cut of this, but he's not part of the lawsuit, which is fascinating because 
essentially Steely and Cleavy are able to, I think, carry out this lawsuit because in 89, they actually registered the fish market song, which became the Pokemon Jam Rhythm, to refresh your memory, um, in the U.S. So one of the reasons why they're even able to sort of like carry this out in like a in in court in California, where is where the, the lawsuit is, is because of the fact that they actually registered the fish market song, which then became, uh, you know, the recorded composition of what became the Pokemon Jam rhythm. But they actually they actually registered with the United States Copyright Office. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why they're able to, I think, carry out this lawsuit. And I think it gets really, really complicated as far as like, you know, it, with a very murky, a very fast, uh, fast made, not a lot of contracts, uh, cottage industry of the, of the, that is the Jamaican music industry. And so, I, you know, I don't, I'm not quite sure where like Bobby Digital falls into all of this by being the producer to actually produce the record, but he's actually not part of the lawsuit. Yeah. So it, it becomes a, like a really complicated story. But I mean, also just deepens the complexity of like why we're covering this. And also, you know, you're talking about what, what people would be screaming. Is like also, it's really important to note here that Dembo, the song, is a, as a text itself, is this incredibly homophobic, vitriolic, like, I would describe it as a piece of like anti-imperialist homophobia. Yeah. That, it's, that, I, yeah. And so, you know, Dembo is like, uh, it is, it is. A, a, a true like in many ways a truly heinous in 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 the attitudes it has towards towards queer folks and like that's another level of complexity that this in, you know and it's like the story of like music and human culture that this not just a globally popular music but a globally popular music that has allowed a whole lot of communities to like really articulate a place in the spotlight whether that's Puerto Rican community, whether that's women, um, you know, as a, w- a wide variety of people of color, it's also all based on this like extremely, extremely homophobic track. Yeah, which just just makes it like so much more complicated. Yeah, it, it's 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 an incredibly like complex story on like so many different levels. Okay, if that's a little bit of like <laughs> Dembo, <laughs> the Poco Man rhythm into Dembo rhythms <laughs> development, like life and times in the like. 80s and early 90s and then we talked a little bit about how it then gets picked up in early reggaeton tracks there's like actually like i was listening to like the dj playero like these some of the original reggaeton mixtapes as preparation for this episode and it's crazy it's like the dembo beat with craft work on top it's so great <laughs> well you know i have to say i mean i know i know we're doing a chronological history here and you said that you know it gets picked up in like early early reggaeton but but i mean actually like i said like you know in 2008 wayne marshall pointed out that it had it, it, it appeared in 80% of all reggaeton. <laughs> so not only does it get picked up in early reggaeton, but it, it sticks around. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing is you listen. It's really interesting. It's like you listen to those mixtapes. And this is where I'm like, uh, you know, like, please do add us scholars of reggaeton if I'm incorrect here. But like it really it's really interesting listening to some of the original underground Puerto Rican mixtapes that really kind of set the set the boundaries of the modern genre and what a lot of times when you're listening to like a really early take on a musical genre it can be fascinating because certain of the kind of like almost like genetic elements of the genre are there but then there's like all this other stuff that later falls away you know so listening to that tape 
some of it doesn't sound exactly like reggaeton. Some of it sounds like, oh, this is almost reggaeton, or like, this is reggae in Espanol, like, this is people spitting over other dancehall rhythms. And then they hit the dembo part. And you're like, oh, okay, this is reggaeton. To the point where, like, that becomes, like you're saying, with 80% of the tracks, like, that becomes the sound, the central beat of the genre. The same way that, like, yeah. the Triggerman beat is the central beat of bounce music. Or, like, <laughs> right. 16th, you know, 16th hi-hats become the sound of trap in the 2000s. Yeah, great comparison. Like, it becomes really, like, the marker, like, a... a or the same way that, like, you know, like a, a lot of, 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 of dance-oriented um, Caribbean musics, of which reggaeton is kind of one, have will be big, built around a specific beat. You know, it really becomes like absolutely integral to the music as a whole. And then, so let's talk about like the second moment the dog didn't bark, which is the explosion of reggaeton, like 2006 to 2008, where you get folks like Daddy Yankee, and uh, to a lesser extent, maybe Tego Calderon, and you all of a sudden have this enormous explosion of reggaeton tracks that hit in a U.S. market just as, in many ways, like the music industry is starting to collapse <laughs> and bring, it seems like, bring online a large Latinx music market that and a global music market a global spanish-speaking music market that the major labels were incredibly hungry for right they're like oh maybe maybe the answer is reggaeton maybe that's the answer and so they throw a ton of money on it you have a bunch of stars that have major hits um what's really interesting is you have this really intense back and forth of radio format I don't know if you remember the Saxon, but it's like a very, very vivid late high school memory for me, like 2007, like maybe like the summer after I graduated high school, before I went to college. And it was like late nights <laughs> cruising around in uh, my friend's uh, 1982 <laughs> diesel <laughs> cream colored Mercedes Benz. <laughs> That he had bought. Hell for. yeah! I could smell it now. I know exactly what those. I could smell the the leather the leather seats now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred. He had bought for like eight hundred bucks with like all Hell of his yeah. saved up money and fixed up himself. And it had just a tape player and the radio. And we would uh, rolling around like high at like four in the morning, listening to reggaeton on the radio just like an endless stream of reggaeton and that was like the sound of that summer for me um and then it went away like really quickly like the format like all these stations flipped to reggaeton formats and then the music industry continued to decline there's uh Record sales decline. There's, you know, the classic thing that happens in, a, in an art form where you have a couple stars, they break through, the labels sign everyone else. There hasn't been time to like develop a real infrastructure for it in many places. And so you get a couple good songs and then a bunch of songs that the label execs don't know what they're doing with that don't hit as hard. And then within like a year or two, those stations flip back to whatever format they were before. 
whether that's hip hop or um, like other Spanish language music stations. And so reggaeton has this enormous explosion and then equally quick decline from the mainstream, right. at least, from like the major label mainstream. And that was a decline that was partially because of, I would say, like just general trends in the music market and also partly because of like major label decision making. But then it comes back. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so I would say that like perhaps had reggaeton Mach 1 continued in its major label world a lawsuit like this might have happened earlier because a lot of those early songs very much sample dembo in this like very obvious way and it's like in like the quintessential like gasolina in my mind is like the quintessential like dembo reggaeton track where it's just like that's the rhythm um but you could argue that from the perspective of a jamaican musician and again i don't you know i cannot speak to what was actually going in in the camps of uh stealing clevy but like the explosion of reggaeton and then its quick decline looks a lot like what had happened to dancehall a bunch of times already yeah right yeah exactly there's a crossover moment there's a couple of big stars they make a bunch of money and then they go away and so like Actually, it brings attention to the entire like economy, the Caribbean music economies. Um, I mean, it doesn't really probably trickle down to Jamaica that much, but like it doesn't seem like, you know, from a from a perspective that had seen this happen in the nineties, seen this happen a couple years earlier in like the mid two thousands with people like Sean Paul and Shaggy. Like it seems like, well, this is how it works, right? Every once in a while, the mainstream global music industry, like represented by the U.S. major labels takes an interest a couple artists get plucked out they make their bag and then things go back to normal and like that's the right. way the and, and i think and also like the thing about dance hall is that it was always kind of like i mean you know obviously there was sean paul hits that were you know just straight up dance hall like you know more popular versions of dance hall but you know and, and getting radio play but also like dance hall always kind of had this this relationship where it was always kind of either tied to hip-hop or like hip-hop radio stations and so it kind of never really emerged fully right as we'll see as you're about to get to it never really kind of emerged fully like kind of as its own sustainable genre like we'll see like reggaeton uh like we'll see in reggaeton outside of jamaica outside jamaica of course yeah of course yeah 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 and that's and that's really kind of what happens next you know eventually it kind of really like Mach 2 happens. Yeah, and Mach 2 happens. And I think that, that with so much of this, it's very easy, I think, to probably oversimplify the next part of the story because I think there's a lot of dynamics about like global Spanish language music industries. It's also about the the ways in which reggaeton, right? The, the ways in which reggaeton put down roots in many, many other places. Um, it's about internet culture writ large and the way that allowed people to connect and flow. But also like, I think there's no way to overstate that this is one of the big changes here is the introduction of streaming, which means that all of a sudden there's kind of a centralization um, and an efficient centralization of Spanish language music markets, both in the U S and outside of the U S. And what that means is that 
you get 8 billion plays of Despacito on YouTube. <laughs> well, yeah, but it means that musicians from all over can like make tracks that then get put into centralized playlists. Like I read a um, an interview, and, and it's interesting, Spotify here was very focused on this from fairly early. So in, I think, their big reggaeton playlist is introduced in like 2012 so fairly early and they were very focused on the ways in which they could move tracks from smaller playlists to the big reggaeton playlist and if a track got big enough on the big reggaeton playlist they could flip it to like the big spanish language playlist um and there's some fascinating data that they they produced about like how much how many more streams a song would get when it got pulled into those playlists and the increased geographic reach of those songs when they were put in those playlists. And it basically seems that in what could be, you know, in, in a music that is tied because I mean, in, in Puerto Rico, this is very much a music that is in kind of like a rap tradition, right? Like of it's music about drugs and guns and street life and the, the 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 lives and hardships of impoverished impoverished puerto ricans and like a like a speaking harsh truth situation right stuff that is maybe not as um that can often face real barriers by getting picked up by international record labels right but what this allows is that musicians in all kinds of different countries to make tracks that if they get trend, if they get, if they get traction in this very like quantifiably focused system could get pulled onto these playlists. And all of a sudden that basically means there's like a central conversation. It seems clear that streaming's ability to bring these tracks in conversation with each other and to create, um, and there's this one interview from 2014 where they kind of say like, the reggaeton playlist in Puerto Rico is the same reggaeton Spotify playlist in Spain, is the same reggaeton Spotify playlist in Venezuela, that we're all listening to the same playlist. And that means that we're all kind of throwing our streams in one big pot. And as a result, you get a push behind this music and a, and, and a, and a kind of amassing of like, generic inertia i would almost say you know like it starts rolling and then once it starts rolling it's harder to stop rolling in a way that that dance hall because of its like complicated relationship with the broader like anglo music markets really struggle to attain and so you get not just a flash in the pan i mean you get the first huge hits like bailando and despacito as reggaeton kind of crosses over with what you might call like salsa light spanish pop you know what i mean like those are not despacito and bailando (laughs) both of which are bangers i am a huge bailando fan myself um okay (laughs) i love that song um did i hear that i don't know if i did (laughs) I, i i don't know i don't know you uh I don't remember. Probably not. Possible, which is a mistake. Possible. Yeah. It's po- oh, it's it's, uh, it's, it's, it's it's. I mean, you heard Gasolina at the wedding. One hundred percent. Yes, we did. Yeah. That you know that that th- those songs are not like hardcore reggaeton songs, but they bring with it in their wake all kinds of 
reggaeton that's much cl- more close, you know, th- th- a wide variety of, of, of the music, right? That can be on the poppier side, that can be on the harder side, and just, like, really gets going as as an international music genre kind of mediated by the streaming sites and continuing now for what like eight nine years as an absolute global phenomena to the point where now bad bunny is the number one artist in the world the last like two or three years and just doing un unprecedentedly huge huge numbers and is an un an a star of an unprecedented magnitude in many ways. Yeah. And I mean, like the, I mean, I will say that like this, I guess uh, this lawsuit maybe also shouldn't come like fully as a surprise uh, in the dance hall mag um, article that kind of, I guess sort of quote unquote broke the story, I guess about Steely and Cleavy doing this, uh, you know, they do quote, um, another old time uh, actually producer, Ninety the Observer, who 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 made some some statements, which I, I won't repeat because they're they're a little combative. But basically, like you know, asking the question about you know how reggaeton has become such a huge phenomenon and how it was kind of built off of like a lot of like Jamaican music and kind of questioning like you know wh- where where's our money, where where's our bag, and so yeah, in a weird way, it does it it does. Uh, it shouldn't come it shouldn't in some ways it shouldn't come as like a complete surprise but you know i am curious maybe to sort of like tie a bow or try to wrap up here a little bit um i am kind of curious like you know if you think this has like future implications for reggaeton for i guess if we're to see future international uh music genres starting to uh hit you know major markets like the u.s and like you know, do you think that like the major labels would like act any differently here? I mean, it is. I mean, come on, it has to be kind of pretty surprising that 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 no. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be surprising, but that like, no one in the majors didn't kind of consider this, or is it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's really, really interesting. Um, I mean, a lot of it's going to be depend on like how this lawsuit goes, right? Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if it gets settled. Oh, one hundred percent is going to get settled. Yeah, one hundred percent. And yeah, because you can't really put a number on it. I mean, like it would be, like what? I mean, what? And, and that's been also <laughs> be like billions of dollars. I mean, that's that's the, and and that's the general trend for all of these, right? That one of the reasons you're getting so many kind of like additional songwriters on stuff is because labels just cut people in instead of like risking a potential lawsuit, which could be much much more deleterious to their like financial interests. Well, I I, I just think yeah, like, and I think it's really interesting too because actually if you if you if you look at who if you look at the actual lawsuit um, which you could actually is is we can link to actually um it's the artists that are named are clearly just the successful uses of of dembo that have made money which is also kind of interesting and kind of goes back to your your point about um maybe why maybe this you know questioning whether or not maybe this lawsuit would have happened a little bit earlier in like 2006 2008 if you know uh if uh reggaeton had continued to like gain in popularity it, it goes it, it kind of contextualizes almost the whole entire conversation about how like you know in jamaica like there wasn't really this it, it's not helpful to like to try to like chase everybody down for using your rhythm it goes against the, the culture right but now that it's become like part of major labels and people who are making millions of dollars it's like now it's like those are the only people being named you know and that reflects like just how much reggaeton has 
gain popularity but also like why this is also the the moment now it's like you know like they're all on major label contracts like justin bieber is like part of is like named in the lawsuit it's like now you could actually try to get that back which is like such a fascinating development also for me it's, it's really it's it's also interesting as like a sign of things to come right um which is yeah exactly and that's kind of yeah where i went yeah which is that definitely. like in a musical a music industry, right, and a musical ecosystem where there's increasingly low friction, where there's an increasing ability for tracks produced locally within one music economy and within one, like, music economy legal system, where, like, even if you do have ostensibly a, one set of copyright laws, the way that those are, the way that those are, like, instantiated on the ground and the way that those are... um like put into practice is going to differ tremendously from place to place. You know, who gets written as a songwriter? How is the metadata working? All of that stuff. And that, you know, that wasn't really a problem. I mean, there were always a couple of cases. These are famous cases like, um, you know, the, the lawsuit uh, about the lion sleeps tonight and the original songwriters and the like 80 year fight to get those songwriting rights back. And so occasionally a song will like cross over and that'll be really complicated. But my sense is that those kinds of musical relationships were more the exception than the rule. So like, you know, as we enter this like globalized music marketplace and tracks from all over the world are, have the possibility to enter like the real big time and the lines between like, or rather the line between the major label dominated mainstream and a lot of localized music economies begins to blur in all kinds of complicated ways, like how these rights and copyrights and monetary flows get adjudicated seems, seems like it's going to, this is going to happen more. Now, is it going to happen like this ever again? I don't know, because in some ways I feel like as we've been discussing this whole time, the specificity of Dembo is about it being is about it being produced at just on the cusp of a digital revolution, which probably we haven't even talked about it, probably makes it more sampleable than a track with drums. Though like the Amen break, which is another, you know, which is the the the, the drum sample that is the root of jungle and drum and bass is uh like an example of how you, it is possible to make it is possible to make music without you know, with live drums, but right. the song that's produced just at the cusp of the digital revolution in dance hall that then gets pulled into the kind of cross-cultural flows of 90s hip-hop that then spreads right before streaming, you know, a, a, a potential new streaming legal regime comes into play, right? It's just perfectly situated as it winds its way <laughs> through the music industry of like the late 20th, early 21st century to get to this place where an entire genre can be built around an uncredited sample of a single song whose creator is still alive. At least one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a great point. And that's probably also the reason why, why like it, it, yeah, we'll never see something quite like this again as well. Also because I think, be I think also because of the fact that, I think copyright has become such a huge, I guess, topic 
now specifically with like so many other yeah. musical touch points and 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 streaming and the ac- access to music that just no one would take that risk anymore you kind of mentioned earlier in the show about how now like people are just kind of everybody's kind of given a credit just to like avoid being like sued essentially like it's it's better just to give them a credit than to like later down the road being sued which makes this kind of situation just also because of the weird timing of it, as you said, and the, the digital transformation and everything. It just, it really seems like it, we'll never see anything quite like this again. Though, just to end on like a kind of weirder note, maybe, also there's questions about the ways that that, the need to do handshake agreements then privileges a certain segment of major label affiliated artists, right? Because... You know, right. b- because, right, like, if you're a major label artist, you can get have the lawyers to, to cut someone in on songwriting. And and you mentioned that this lawsuit doesn't try to hit at the wide variety, you know, the enormous number of less successful reggaeton songs that sample this, uh, that sample this beat. Though, you know, who knows, like, <laughs> if... If they win the lawsuit, I could imagine them just going down the list and being like, everyone up to this point, we already know, we know you're all on the hook. Yeah, pay up. <laughs> but but the flip side is that given structures like content ID, right. which, you know, are like the automatic content filters that pull stuff off the internet, you could also imagine a world where a ruling like this decimates the digital archive and the, the the kind of ability of small scale reggaeton artists to use this essential building block of the music in their work. And for example, when I was trying to find that that um, those original reggaeton mixtapes, it was just it took me a while on YouTube because it was like upload after upload that had been taken down. Yeah. For cop- which I assume for copyright infringement. Yeah. And I'm not saying, and this is where you get to the, the tricky, you know, the 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 the, um, the stickiness at the core of it. At one level, I don't think that Steely and Cleavy should have their copyright infringed on. I also don't think that 20 years of transnational reggaeton history should mostly, mostly from artists who didn't make a million dollars, who were using this music as part of their culture to, like, speak their truth about the world that their music should be taken down. And I, and I don't know what kind of damage it could do to cultural practices if the ability to use these kind of musical building blocks or to freely use other people's music, which has been a core of kind of digital music making since the 80s, goes away. And so like how this intersects with the fact that there's also now all of this big money flowing around, I think is is tricky and it's going to play out it's going to play out on on a case-by-case basis and it's going to play out across a number of uneven terrains yeah and i think that's a great place to actually wrap up the show i think those are some great points i mean i'll just add that like i i I do kind of feel like it also might be just kind of like a one-time thing but it inevitably will lead you know just because of the, the importance of copyright today and it's it's emphasis today it probably will just lead to more better safe than sorry practices and so, yeah, like you said, we you know might lose uh, so access to some like key key early histories of like say a genre like reggaeton, um, which is a real loss. And key and key new new contributors. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Great point. Uh, well, I think we'll leave it with that. Um, we'll definitely obviously keep you updated on the 
lawsuit and what happens uh, should be pretty fascinating. And like, we'll definitely do an update of it, a brief update of it. Please follow us on all the socials, uh, rate and review us so we can get the good word of Money for Nothing out, music by Bird Language. And yeah, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>